Hello, and welcome to the Adaptive Executive Podcast, where we meet with senior executives and discuss how to keep yourself and your organization adaptive and your employees engaged. My name is Greg Ballard, founder and owner of 5C Consultant, and I am your host. If you'd like to be considered as a guest for this podcast, you can apply on our website at 5C.consulting. Look for the word podcast. For now, let's dive into the show. Hello, and welcome to The Adaptive Executive. I'm your host, Greg Ballard, and I have a very special guest with me, Sharon B. Heaton. Sharon is the owner of SB Liftoff, is a frequent speaker, and is published in Hardware Business Review, Forbes, Washington Business Journal, and other outlets. She was named one of the most influential, 50 most influential women in M&A by BDO, and one of the top 25 women in M&A by Opus Connect. Sharon is the founder of SB Liftoff and founded it to serve people who sit at their kitchen table, come up with an idea, start a business, hire people, pay their taxes, and fuel our economy. Small businesses are the backbone of the American economy, and we are honored to make sure they get their field fair deal before before starting SB Liftoff. Sharon worked for a global uh, uh, for a series of global law firms, Skaden Arps and Latham and Watkins. She also served as a senior counsel to the Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, Urban Affairs and worked as a general counsel and deputy staff director of Senate Committee on Environmental and Public Works. She co-founded Energy, Wilford Energy Group, an investment, an investment bank serving clean energy and low-carbon companies with deputy counsel of a Fortune 500 company operating in 10 states. Sharon's company focuses on government contracting and commercial companies with 15 to $100 million in revenue, otherwise known as the lower, little, the lower middle market, uh, which is an underserved sector of the economy. She holds a Juris Doctorate from the University of Chicago Law School and a Bachelor's of Arts from Barden College. Sharon was also recently appointed to the U.S. Business Administration's newly established Federal Investment Capital Advisory Committee. Sharon, welcome. Thank you very much, Greg. It's a pleasure to be here. Glad to have you. So, Sharon, tell us a little bit about your journey, how you got here. Love to hear it. Uh, well, I was born in a log cabin. Just joking. The reality is I have had quite a journey. And as you were describing uh, the bio, it's like, well, those were all incredibly interesting experiences that then led to the next experience, not necessarily in a straight line, but in a very useful way. As I tell people, I am a recovering attorney. Uh, I went to law school and um, found the practice of law to be fantastic intellectually, but it wasn't quite as emotionally satisfying as I would have liked. Um, I found as a child that I was very interested in people who made service some portion of their life. Um, I knew I was never going to be a doctor, um, but I wanted to figure out how to use law, which I understood, in a way that would make people's lives better. So having the, a career where I was able to do well by doing good was very important to me. Uh, great training from Skadden Arps, fantastic law firm. Uh, but I left there to go to Capitol Hill, worked in the U.S. Senate, as you said. Uh, it was very interesting in that um, as I was leaving Skadden Arps to go to Capitol Hill, many of my colleagues turned to me and said, why would you do this? People go to Capitol Hill to get a job at Skadden Arps. And I said, because I really want to work on Capitol Hill and think about the bigger picture issues and how I can make a difference and try and improve uh, these aspects of the economy. 
uh, a funny conversation was with my mother who said, oh, you're at SCAD and you're working so many hours, Sharon. I understand you wanting to change jobs. I'm assuming you'll work less hours. And I said, no, mom, I think I'm actually going to work more hours. She said, well, clearly you're going to make more money. And I said, actually, I'm taking a 66% pay cut. And she said, what the heck are you doing? And looking back on it years later, I was making among the best decisions of my life. So you can't always look at these decisions in the short term. You've got to figure out what it is you can gain and what it is you can give in each thing that you're doing. And so, yeah, you made a an unconventional career decision there, uh, Sharon, and that speaks likely to some of your core values. Maybe you could share with us a little bit about some of those core values that were driving that decision. Um, absolutely. Again, Skadden was a wonderful place to be, uh, and I learned a huge amount. In some ways, it's like boot camp. Um, but it was essentially very wealthy companies moving money from one pocket to another. Intellectually challenging, but emotionally unsatisfying. Going to Capitol Hill, I found that my job was to put my feet up on my desk and say, we're dealing with this issue in the banking system. What's the right way it should be handled? And then figuring out what's the closest to that right result that we could possibly get to. Thinking about things from a public interest as opposed to thinking about things from a private interest. And I thought that those things were in conflict with each other. As my career has gone on, I've realized that's completely not true. That in many ways, the people who are building companies are the ones who are creating jobs and paying taxes and moving the US economy forward. And figuring out how to serve them uh, became my mission. And that was part of the reason why I ultimately founded SB Liftoff. As you said, to work with the people who sat at their kitchen table and after a number of years, they've got 10 million, 20 million, $30 million in revenue. Those folks are the backbone of the US economy. And I think it's an underserved part of the market. I think that if you're very, very big, firms like Skadden Arps and other places really want to uh, work with you. Uh, and if you're really small, there's an ecosystem for companies that are two or $3 million in revenue. But there's this kind of lost middle child syndrome of companies that are million, uh, 10 million to 150 million that don't quite get the attention they deserve, but are incredibly important to our economy. They create about one third of all the jobs in the US economy. Uh, so I felt very moved to do what I can to make sure that those transactions were done on a fair basis. Fair not only to my client, but fair to the other side as well, including fair to the employees, the customers, the vendors, each company has its own ecosystem. And you wanna make sure that it's not simply money being changed between two people's hands, but rather that the entire system is strengthened. So we met briefly at the top of the Tower Club um, several weeks ago during a snowstorm, and you passed off a copy of your newly published book, Lift Off, 12 Things to Know Before Selling Your Business. So a couple, I want to talk a little bit about the book and and kind of give the listeners a, a little taste of what's in it. But before we do that, uh, tell me, what was the motivation around publishing this book? As we discussed earlier, um, SB Liftoff is an M&A advisory firm, and we work mostly with founder owners. Um, so I spent hundreds of hours talking to people who had companies and were looking to sell. These are smart people. 
they created a company, they kept it going, they were profitable, but they didn't know a heck of a lot about M&A. And truth is, they shouldn't have to. Uh, they should be able to partner with somebody who can help them with that. Heck, when I get my tooth pulled, I don't study dentistry, I go to a dentist. Uh, it's kind of the same thing here. On the other hand, uh, when somebody is selling their company, it's often the largest financial transaction of their life. Business owners often have 80 or 90% of their net worth tied into that company. And they're probably going to sell one company in their lifetime. So it, it's something that is extremely high stakes and it's something that they don't know a lot about. After all of these conversations of which I continue to have them, of course, I realized that there was a series of questions that business owners really kind of came back to. Um, how will you value my company? Who will the buyers be? How will we maintain confidentiality? What is the process? What is this due diligence I keep on hearing about? So I sat down and wrote down the various questions uh, that I get on a regular basis and then answered them. And I tried to answer them as though I was talking to a friend, not that I was talking to a lawyer or an accountant or an M&A advisor, but I was talking to somebody who was smart, but maybe not uh, experienced or familiar with the terms of M&A. So I wanted to make this an accessible book that a smart person not familiar with M&A could read and understand and that would give them some of the basis that they need to take some of the fear out of the process. That makes a lot of sense. So you gave me a copy and I've read your book and, you know, full disclosure, I host a lot of folks that come on that publish books. I don't get a chance to read all of them, but I did get a chance and I did read yours and I enjoyed it. I don't know if this is the visual you wanted, but as I was reading this, if I was a seller, I could imagine sitting in an office or sitting at a kitchen table and you conversing with me, educating me on the process. That's kind of the visual. I, I, fe I felt as though you came in as, as a, an advisor to me through your book and educated me on the sell side, on all the major components, right? I feel oriented. If I was to put my business on the market, I feel oriented to the process having read your book. Was that your goal or close to Thank it? Thank you. That, is, that was exactly the goal. Um, I basically tried to write the book in the same way that I speak to people. Um, and I tell uh, business owners, I'm going to have to ask you questions about your company probably more than once. You're going to have to explain things to me. But you're going to have to ask me things about the M&A process probably more than once. Uh, but I can also take some of the pressure off of that by putting it down in writing. We also do a lot of videos. We have a YouTube channel because sometimes people need to hear the same information multiple times and in multiple ways. So conversations with us, reading the book, listening to the YouTube channel, doing, you know, watching podcasts or webinars, all of these things can help. And each one, you'll not walk away with 100% of the information you'll need. But if you can pick up 20% of what you need from this and 20% from there, you know, you can really do quite a good job of educating yourself. And it's ultimately not designed, to be perfectly honest, that you're gonna go out and do a deal by yourself. It's a complicated process. You know, I could describe heart surgery until the cows come home, but you wouldn't wanna do that on your mother. Uh, similarly, these are complicated transactions and you absolutely need advisors. But a business owner who has an understanding 
of what the process is and the terms that are going to be thrown about and why these things are happening is going to be able to be far calmer um, and be able to get through the process uh, in a smoother way than somebody who's really coming at it totally in the dark. Yeah. And if I'm going to, I'm going to, click on a few things that came to came up to me in the book. And this is not linear, so it's not starting in the beginning and moving through. I'm just going to jump around from the things that kind of activated my, you know, engaged me. So one, you know, we're talking about $10, $15 million companies on the low end. You're at that size. And if you're the owner, uh, you're, you're, you're pretty busy. You have things you're doing. You're dealing with clients. You're dealing with your internal team to begin to prepare for a sell side transaction, it's probably not in your bandwidth, number one. And so bringing in an M&A advisor or a team to help you is, is going to expand your capability. That's one thing I got through this. The other is this idea that you need to become a little dispassionate about your business, right? You got to look at your baby and recognize it's a little ugly, right? And and that is not the easiest thing to do. I'm a parent of four young kids. And no matter what you say, you know, I'm not going to tell you any of them are ugly. Um, there's things that they need to work on, but it's going to be it's difficult as a business owner to say, yeah, that's a problem. Yeah, that's a that's devaluing my company. We're always going to say it's oh, that's okay. I'm, that can be fixed later. So having a professional, right. it's been very yeah. Go ahead. It's been very interesting to me. I find that business owners. While they love their companies, like just like they love their children, are actually pretty aware of the strengths and challenges. And what we, we say to them is, we've not we've not yet seen a company that doesn't have some challenges. Maybe your company will be the first when we look at it, but pretty much every company we know has some strengths and some challenges. Um, and what's different about the M and A process is that when you're in business, you're going to make mistakes. And you're going to make mistakes in years one and two that you're going to fix in years two and three. Mm -hmm. And that's great. But M&A is a one-time, mm -hmm. over and done. There's no chance. There's no do-overs. Um, so understanding and working with people who have walked that path before makes a huge difference. I actually find that business owners find it a little bit of a relief to be able to say, oh, you mean I don't need to spin everything? I get to actually tell the truth. I get to promote the strengths, but own those challenges and try and work with somebody on a basis of reality. And we strongly support that. People who try and hide those challenges think that, oh my gosh, I'll get a letter of intent and it will be fabulous. But after that letter of intent, the buyer's going to find out what those challenges are. And that's a problem because the buyer's going to say either the seller didn't know about those challenges, so they don't know what's going on in their company. Or the seller didn't tell me about those challenges, so I really can't trust them. It's extremely important to build trust between the buyer and the seller and to have empathy, not only for yourself, but the other party. And part of that is for sellers to be honest about their companies, both the strengths and the challenges. It could still be beautiful. It is a beautiful company. It has survived. It has thrived. It has paid its taxes. It's created jobs. It's a success. But even as a success, there will be some challenges and let's own them and be honest about them. Yeah, I was actually, that's that's kind of where I wanted to go. This idea of um, it, this is the time to be utterly honest. 
right? Because that honesty builds trust. And the when you when you show the warts first and say, yes, we're making money, we're profitable, but these are the warts, you lead with that, a buyer is going to say, okay, okay, they're, they're giving me some of the ugly up front. And so I can trust that they're being honest. They're not just polishing this to make it really look good. Because buyers are going to be as you say in the book, and I think on multiple occasions, at the day of close, the seller will always know more about their business than the buyer will. And therefore, we have to have empathy towards the buyer and provide as much information as they need. And the information they need may not be what we think they need, but it's whatever they want, whatever they they arguably can say, hey, I, I want to understand this better. Because the day of close, the seller will always know more than the buyer does. That's a point I think driven well. You agree. Let me ask another. So there's a lot of things you cover in the book from the process to valuation, the art and science of valuing, um, you know, all the different components of, um, of uh, due diligence, you know, how much information to share and how to structure sharing information in the process, how to vet a buyer, all that. What I'd love to do is turn a little bit into GovCon because I, as I was reading through, I was like, okay, yep, I'm tracking with everything. And then I hit GovCon and it's just like, oh, Let's turn all the carts over and talk about GovCon. So the way GovCon is structured because of contracts and and that, you know, it's no longer going to be asset sales most of the time. It's going to be stock purchases. So let's talk a little bit about what's unique about GovCon. And then I love to talk a little bit about the nature of being adaptive in this market. That is a great series of questions. Uh, the first thing that's different about GovCon is one of the things I say in the book is smaller companies get smaller multiples, bigger companies get bigger multiples. And that's pretty much true in commercial, not necessarily in GovCon. Um, if in fact you're a company that's working in the set-aside world, you're a small business, SDBOSB, veteran-owned, woman-owned, um, you are in a world that you can size out of. Now, the system is a little screwy because most of the NICS codes getting sized out are by revenue. There are a couple that are employee-based. Not enough, let's put those aside. But as a general rule, if you're in the designation world, at some point you're going to grow out of that designation and you're gonna to have to compete in the full and open market. Bizarrely enough, in the GovCon world, as you get closer to sizing out, your EBITDA multiple for valuation goes down. That doesn't happen in the commercial world. So it's very important to think about when to sell your company. Uh, people who run their company saying, I will keep on going until such time as I'm close to my size out standard, and then I'll sell, need to understand that they're trying to get a buyer who's going to step into that problem. And buyers will do that, but they will pay less money for that than if they're being able to step into your shoes and stay in the designation world. Or alternatively, you as a seller can bring your company into the full and open market and have a phenomenal impact on the valuation of your company. Just putting some numbers to it, if you are in the designation slash set aside world, your multiple is probably going to be somewhere between three and six, seven on the very, very high side with structuring. If you're in the full and open market, same company, you might be starting at a five, uh, multiple and going up to a 10 or 11. Well, that's a big difference. Um, there's definitely people in the market at this point 
who are saying, I would like to buy a company that's in the designation world and buy them at a four multiple, get them into the full and open world and sell it in an eight multiple. There's an arbitrage there. It's a little bit like fixing up your house before you go to market. Do you want to send, uh, sell your, your house with a bathroom that needs to be renovated and a kitchen that needs to be renovated and basically sell at a lower price? Or do you want to do the renovation yourself? The problem is that the renovation in GovCon, getting it to full and open, is, is tough. You really need to be very focused on it. And you can't be focused on it in the six or 12 months prior to sizing out. You really need to be thinking about that years in advance. Mm. Yeah, so really great insight there. Because I think, like you said, a lot of times buyers are looking to top off their their section and then hand the keys over to somebody else. And they're thinking they're going to get this great valuation when really they're positioning yourself to be purchased at a discount. Right? Um, that is correct. Now, here's the countervailing argument. If you're selling and let's say your five-year revenue average is 20 and you're under a 40 NICS code, there's a lot of room there. Uh, but at 20, and I'm just making up numbers here, let's assume that you've got a um, EBITDA, adjusted EBITDA of three. Uh, and maybe you're going to get a six multiple on that. So three times six is 18. Well, now you are 35 million and you don't have 3 million in EBITDA. You have 5 million of EBITDA. Um, 5 million, maybe you're not going to get six. Maybe you'll get five. So um, you, when you multiply that out, it is a bigger number, but it's not bigger proportionately. You just have to decide whether or not a smaller multiplier on a bigger number is good for you. I've seen people say, oh no, I'm not going to sell at 25. I'm going to wait until I'm 29. And when I do the analysis, it says, you're not going to get anything better uh, at selling at that higher number because of the time value of money, the risk that you're getting, taking on, et cetera. So it is a complicated analysis that you really should be working with some advisors to help you walk that through. But understand that there's a lot of levers to be pulled particularly in GovCon, uh, as you're growing and be keeping your eye on the prize, what's your ultimate goal as an owner? Recognize change is going to occur. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to be an adaptive executive. Uh, are you going to be an adaptive executive and take your company into the full and open market? Or are you going to be an adaptive executive and prepare your company for sale while you're still in the designation world? Either way, change is required. Change is required. That is, that's everybody every day. We're always changing. So this is a perfect transition, a perfect uh, moment to pivot over to, you know, talking about um, as, as the owner of SB Liftoff, you, you've led a career, you, you help support businesses through this process. You have a team. I'd like to dive in a little bit into Sharon Heaton's kind of practice or mindset or approach to dealing with change and being able to stay adaptive. Do you have any go-to things that you do on a irregular or a routine basis that help you to stay fresh and ready for whatever comes at you? I find that staying out of ruts is very important. Reading, extensive reading, podcasts, let's be honest, um, is incredibly important. Bringing in new information into my mind on a regular basis. Also, meeting new people. In the process, I try and do as much listening as possible. I'm not learning anything when I'm talking. I'm learning something when I'm listening. 
I don't necessarily always agree with what I'm hearing, but it's a different perspective. And what I've learned in my career is that empathy makes a huge difference. Figuring out not solely what I or my side is interested in, but understanding what's important to the other side so that we can find the win-win scenario between them. You know, when I talk about the win-win, sometimes people will say, oh, you know, it's touchy-feely. It's, you know, it's reality is that M&A is based upon two parties coming to an agreement. Both of them have to get pretty much what they want. They're going to make compromises. There's going to be negotiations. Nobody's going to get 100% of what they want. But there are many issues to be discussed other than money. Money is very important, not taking anything away from it. But there are other issues like certainty to close or timing or employees or legacy. Um, And understanding what's important to the seller, understanding what's important to the buyer allows you to find, stitch together the transaction where most people are getting the core issues that are important to them. Let's dive into that a little bit. So I've heard a couple things in there. One, um, to the question of being adaptable, you, you like to listen and get exposed to new ideas, new information, new people uh, through books, podcasts, and other things. Do you have any particular periodicals that you pay attention to uh, in this space that others may find interesting? What I do is I read pretty widely. Uh, I read four or five newspapers. Um, I read, you know, The Economist and a bunch of other, you know, serious kind of magazines. And then truth is, I like to read things in popular culture as well. Um, Things that I would not necessarily go to myself, but I want to know because it's such an impact on society. Hey, listen, it's 2024. You got to talk about Taylor Swift. You know, I'm old enough that Taylor Swift is not somebody who is incredibly important in my life, but she's a major phenomenon in the world. So I went out and rented the movie The Eras Tour because I had to say, what is going on here, man? It was quite good. I have a better understanding of it. She makes um, good music once in a while, Exposing your, She makes good music. She dances fine. And, it, and it's a lovely mo- mood. Uh, so it's more an issue of being open to new information and experiences and then incorporating that into your own value system. My value system is doing well by doing good. That is, I want my client, I want SB Liftoff to be successful. That's our doing well. But we also want to make sure that we're doing good in the process of doing well. And but that means protecting the jobs of the employees and making sure that the quality of work remains the same Um, and that there's a legacy component for a lot of these companies. Understanding what's important to the buyer and the seller really allows you to adapt the transaction, but the buyer and the seller themselves have to adapt during the transaction as well. So second point, empathy. I'd love to hear if you have any anecdotes. Empathy is a super. It's a superpower and, and not everybody carries it in the same doses, right? So if you have a story without naming any names where you may have had to work with a seller or a buyer that maybe needed a little bit more of that. How did you help them through that process? Um, I need one story will be challenged because I have so many of them. I'm going to tell you two stories because I'm going to take it from different perspectives. One story is uh, very often our, we are selling a company that's a founder owner. And as we said, 
that founder owner is emotionally connected to that company. Uh, they know it's not perfect, but they want to be respected. They deserve to be respected. They're creating year after year, millions of dollars of revenue. They're paying their taxes. They're employing people. They've done something really special. I have seen buyers walk into the room and put their feet up on the desk and say to the seller, let me tell you what you're doing wrong with your company. And I'm saying to myself watching this, well, this meeting is over. Uh, that buyer has just shown a total lack of empathy for that seller. In fact, a fairly significant degree of disrespect. Now they might be doing it because they're trying the, starting the negotiation process. Oh, you're not worth what you think you're worth. You know, let me tell you what all the problems are. It's such an incredibly poor way of creating relationship, which is going to be important for that negotiation. So seller buyers absolutely need to be thinking like sellers and understanding that this is a very significant transaction uh, and it's a personal transaction, it's emotional and it's financial. In contrast, sellers need to understand that buyers are going through a fairly significant process as well. Um, even when it's a professional buyer, uh, the buyer is doing a couple of different things. The buyer is working on negotiating a deal with the seller, but they're also probably negotiating a deal with the bank. And they're probably possibly negotiating a deal with equity. And oh, by the way, they're running their own company at the same time. That buyer is a one-armed paper hanger. And they are doing a lot of things. I was talking to a client just the other day, representing a client on the sell side. And they were saying they, they were felt frustrated because they felt like the buyer wasn't being responsive enough. We were sending over information and it was taking two or three days for the buyer to turn documents around. And I stopped my client and said, let's look at what's going on on their side. We're basically working on one deal, selling to them. They're working on the equity, the debt, the, sell, the transaction with you, as well as preparing for what's going to happen after the transaction. Their hands are full. If it's taking them another day or two, it's okay. That's why empathy is so critically important. I did one deal where the um, owner uh, was selling his company and he was an IT guy. Uh, and he started his IT career in the 70s and 80s, built a very successful company and it was being sold to a strategic buyer. Um, we negotiated th this one, as you said, most of them are done as asset deal, as stock deals because of GovCon. This was actually done as an asset deal uh, because of sizing out issues and having to structure it in a special way. Um, once the deal was pretty close to being done, the seller turned to me and said, he really wanted to keep his servers. He also really wanted to keep his artwork. I looked at the artwork and I said, I don't think this is going to be a problem. I don't think the buyer is going to want it. But you, of course, have to talk to the buyer. And I turned to him and said, why do you want the servers? Let's be honest. This is a time where most people are going to the cloud. And he said, those servers brought me to where I am. They're very important to me. I don't want to give them up. I turned to the buyer and I said, listen, there's going to be no adjustment in the purchase price here. But would you be OK with my client keeping the servers and the artwork. And they thought about it for a very short period of time. And they said, yes, because it was important to them, but it was important to the seller. That's an easy give. Finding out those areas where important to one side, but not the others, that's where you can find the way to smooth over uh, issues 
when in fact it's important to both sides. Find out other things that can be brought to the table. I love that. Um, I know this is not about me, but my previous career, I had to learn how to uh, motivate and engage and really get people to do things without any compensation, right? And so what we're really talking about here in this empathy conversation, I think, is recognizing money is important, but there are so many other things on the human perspective that people will get value in. And being able to listen and identify those and to be able to figure out how to work them into the negotiation. That's one of the components of empathy. Incredibly important. When I sit down with a potential seller, uh, I say, what's important to you? And invariably, the first answer is, you know, purchase price. I care a lot about what the purchase price is. I said, okay, that's completely understand. It's very important. How about your employees? Oh, very important. The employees were critical to my success and I have to make sure that they're taken care of. I said, how about the quality of work that you're doing for the government if you're a government contractor? Oh, very important. We've got a great relationship. We do great work. They care a lot about it. And I say, okay, so we now have three number one priorities. We're going to have to balance these things out. And one thing that I've learned is that my sellers don't always take the highest purchase price. They will often take a purchase price that's not the highest because they have more confidence in that buyer's ability to run the company, to keep their their employees employed, and to provide the services to the clients. So purchase price matters, structure matters, but there's a lot of other factors that need to be paid attention to. Love it. So listening, being empathetical can help people navigate and stay adaptive inside of these deals. I'd like to, I know we've only got a couple minutes left, but I'd like to pivot and dive into, and I don't know how much this is talked about, but if I was to ask you to maybe speak to a sell side VP or somebody that's not the owner, but is working on behalf of the owner in the middle of a transaction, and think of that psychology, think of what's going on for them. You know, they're being asked to be at the tip of the spear to sell the organization that they have contributed to. And they're, they're saying goodbye to their owner and they're negotiating and doing this work for an owner who they don't know, they haven't met yet. And they're expected every day to come in and show up 100% and to help make this deal happen. What advice or what counsel might you give to someone listening to this podcast that's in that seat? Incredibly important question. Um, let me start a little bit before that, which is with the seller. This, we work with sellers who very often do not want to tell anybody that they're working on a transaction. And we can generally work with the owners alone for a certain period of time. But at some point, that owner is almost certainly going to need to bring in at least a finance person, uh, because we're gonna ask for a lot of financial information, we're gonna ask for a lot of data, and it's gonna be necessary. So the question becomes, how does an owner bring in an employee uh, and have them participate in that transaction in a way that is fair to the seller, but also that employee? Um, and the way to, that we've generally seen people do that is sellers, tend to be pretty respectful of their employees and those who, as they say, help create the party that they're now celebrating. Um, so we find a lot of compensation. 
not a lot of compensation, but some compensation is often paid by the seller to the uh, employee that's involved in that transaction. What's critically important, and this is where sellers make a big mistake, is they do what's referred to as a change of control bonus, and they pay it all out on the day of closing. That is not good for the employee. It's not good for the buyer. It's not good for the seller. If the seller is going to provide some level of compensation to an employee, and we think that they should, particularly if they were critical in the building of the company and getting the transaction done, then you pay it out. So a small amount is paid out actually at closing. Uh, more is paid out three or six months later, and then after nine or 12 months. At that point, um, it becomes an issue for the buyer to have worked with that employee long enough so that the that employee wants to stay with the company having met the buyer. So at some point, the responsibility for that employee does shift to the buyer, but it's actually a really good practice for the seller to not only financially reward those employees who help them, but to use that as a way of tying that employee to the company for some limited period of time after the transaction. Every transaction has a post-merger integration period of at least three to six weeks. That's a little bit of a complicated process. It never goes quite as smoothly as everybody would like it to. Having uh, people have an economic incentive to stay past that bumpy period to where they get into really where the buyer is now leading the organization helps everybody. So figuring out who are the people that you can trust and what would be an incentive to them. Uh, and truth is, where you live in a capitalist society, the incentive is usually money. Um, and tying that to the transaction makes sense. Yeah, so what I'm hearing there is that relationship has to be structured in a way that is going to support the transaction and the post-integration. And if it's not structured uh, well... Correct. If it's not structured well, it could have some negative impact on the deal, on the relationships all the way around the table. Uh, that is correct. One of the things that buyers are buying, that we're actually buying a couple of different things, and sellers don't always understand this. One, they're buying the company. We all understand that. Second is... The buyer is buying the right not to be in competition with the seller. So a seller is going to be asked to sign a non, you know, a non-compete because that seller just created a company that's valuable and the buyer doesn't want to be in competition with that seller, at least for a period of years. And third, they're buying the employees, the functioning group of people there who know their jobs and know what they're doing and are creating value. Well, the seller needs to think about what can they do to deliver those employees? And at some point, it becomes the buyer's responsibility to keep those employees, but you want to make sure that it's good um, so those employees want to be there. And communication at the right time, in the right way, is critical to that. Communication too early can be devastating. Uh, communication too late can also be devastating. It really doesn't matter when it's when it's done. Yeah, so... so Okay, thinking in that context, um, you've got a key employee, maybe it's the CFO, maybe it's someone else that's been with the company a long time, and you're now tapping them as the owner uh, to kind of do carry some do some of the legwork and the due diligence. So maybe the LOI is already done and it's now, now it's time to actually get in the nitty gritty. This person is now 
essentially operating under you know very surreal conditions right because they're in they're in the inner circle now what might be some things that you would give them a, from advisory how to handle this how to process this how to maintain relationships with the rest of the team uh, but not blow up the deal entirely depends upon that employee and where they are in their life and what their goals are sometimes that very senior person is getting ready for retirement themselves and they might have been very tied to the seller for a lot of years and are saying i really want to have a good exit for this seller because we've been working together for 20 25 years and i'm heading towards retirement as well so that's one scenario another scenario is maybe you've got somebody who's 42 and has been working at the company for a while but really has a fair amount of time left in their career well for that person you want to be talking about the possibility of advancement what additional responsibilities what upward mobility will there be in this new world order very often we do transactions where the seller themselves is going to be leaving but the buyer is very interested in the secondary management team and promoting those people into leadership roles very smart buyers and we see a lot of these will actually give out some to either equity or phantom equity to that secondary level of management to say we want you to participate in the growth it's not simply going to be us getting all the benefit as the buyer but rather we want to have benefit to us but benefit to the employees as well so it depends a lot on where is the um employee and their life cycle what are they looking to do are they essentially you know towards the end of their career or do they have a lot of gas in the tank and really want to you know keep going so how you create those incentives depend a lot upon who are the people that you're dealing with and what's important to them again empathy thinking about it not from your perspective but from their perspective excellent this is fantastic uh sharon i want to again thank you for joining us today before we close out i want to uh, mention your new book lift off uh, 12 things to know before selling your business uh if folks wanted to get a hold of this or if they wanted to get a hold of you what's the best way where can they follow you uh or or connect with you absolutely first of all the book is available on amazon uh, it's also available as an audible and I'm very pleased to announce that in the last week or so, I've been advised that the, it's an Amazon bestseller. Um, so we're very excited about that. And we're getting very, very positive feedback on the book. So whether you listen to it or you read it, it is available. Uh, and Amazon is probably the best place to get it. Uh, in terms of following us, we have a very active presence on LinkedIn, uh, both me personally, Sharon Heaton, or SB Liftoff. Uh, of course, SB Liftoff has a fairly sophisticated website and feel free to reach out to us that way as well. Uh, we are very responsive and we're eager to talk to you. We talk to people who are two, three, five years away from selling because we think that the more you think about this in advance, the stronger your exit process is going to be. Excellent. Sharon, thank you so much for joining us today and we wish you well as you continue to promote your book and serve uh, the M&A market in this space and those that are looking to sell. So. Uh, Listeners, if you are in the GovCon, in the M&A uh, space, or you are considering or thinking about selling your company, I encourage you to take a look at this, um, this book that Sharon has published and check out her and her company. If you are in an organization that is working in the M&A space, uh, hopefully you have heard some things today that can help you uh, stay adaptive 
and and continue to maintain your executive impact. Thank you all. Thank you for joining us on the Adaptive Executive Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. You can follow us on LinkedIn and by subscribing to our mailing list. Again, my name is Greg Ballard and thank you for listening.